2: You may have noticed some change in the environment around you during our time of shelter in place. Of course, in some ways, that very phenomenon, if it happened, is ebbing a bit now as people filter back into the streets, go back to their natural ways. But for a while, yeah, it seemed like, you know, maybe the streets were quieter and we were quieter. People think maybe the night sky was more visible, less light pollution. I have a hard time figuring out why that would be. But, uh, and uh, there were reports from all over the place of animals kind of reclaiming their terrain. Some of those reports I have. my For example, one of the articles that I read to get ready for this show mentioned uh, Sika deer in Nara, Japan, on the streets of Nara. Well, I happen to have been to Nara, Japan. Deer are on the streets all the time. It doesn't make any difference whether there's a coronavirus or not. I've actually watched a deer stand at a crosswalk and wait for the pedestrian light to turn green before walking across. That's how urbanized those deer are. So, yeah, you know, coyotes and wild turkeys and they're all, they live with us all the time. But there are ways, there are ways that the world changed. And we're gonna talk about those things today. We're gonna talk at the end of the show Uh, about salamanders and other amphibians crossing the roads of Maine on their way to make sexy time and how, in fact, this really has been kind of a boon for them. But we're going to talk to uh, a herpetologist who—actually, we're going to talk to a journalist who wrote about uh, the work of herpetologists in kind of relocating those animals with minimum carnage. We're also going to talk uh, in the middle section uh, specifically about air pollution, which did change during the lockdown, the shelter in place. It's going back to what it was in places like Wuhan. Um, and, but there are some parts to that story that may surprise you. I know they certainly surprised me. But there was sort of no way to do this show without having our first guest here. In fact, the minute we started talking about doing this episode, we started calling it uh, the World Without Us show. The world, Yeah, we have to do a World Without Us show, uh, which is a reference to a 2007 book by our guest Alan Wiseman. Uh, he's the author, actually, of six books, including The World Without Us, uh, which uh, does, in fact, talk about... What would happen uh, if one particular species were not around anymore? How quickly the world would reclaim some of its territory? So, uh, Alan Wiseman, uh, thank you for joining us today. Oh, pleasure. So... I I guess we really kind of have to begin there. Obviously, this is not the scenario you posit in the book. This is one tiny, tiny little pie slice uh, of that scenario. Even so, as you've watched whatever it is unfold, uh, what what have been your thoughts? Uh, Have you been thinking—I mean, for example, one thing we should say is in in the book, you— one of the scenarios you kind of posit is some kind of virus comes in and sweeps away humankind. So uh, not that that happened, but uh, you you seem to have been on the right track. Did you see other ways in which some of your ideas were confirmed of late?
3: Well, uh, the idea of my book was to theoretically remove human beings from the picture uh so readers could see what would happen if we reduced our pressures on on the world mm-hmm. and it turns out that nature rushes back in where we fear to tread or where we are absent much more quickly than one might in, might imagine uh, in the book, I dispense with humanity rather quickly in the beginning. I just imagine, that as you said, the most likely thing is that a Homo sapiens specific virus could pick us off. Uh, you know, I, back then I was thinking if AIDS were to mutate and go airborne uh, and we all might catch it. An epidemiologist told me theoretically it was possible, but it was a remote possibility, which was good because I didn't want to scare readers off. Readers are already scared by environmental literature. They think it's going to be too depressing and scary. So by killing everybody off right in the beginning, they didn't have to worry about that anymore. And they could stick around to see what happens next. And And that that was why the book became a big success. It's out like in three dozen languages. Um, what has happened it's in the current pandemic. Uh, it's been enough to scare us off the streets. And a lot of wildlife sightings, uh, there have been a lot of wildlife sightings. I started getting barraged by pictures from all over the world uh, and also requests like this one from journalists all over the world to talk about this. And what what really um, kind of touched me after a while, I mean, first of all, it was nice to see so much wildlife out there uh, that people were noticing and they felt like somehow warmed by it. And that's a lovely thing to think of in the middle of a pandemic when we're all really, really scared. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the reports of deer in uh, Japanese cities or even um you know dolphins in the venice canals which turned out to be photoshopped images coming from a port in sicily which was still nice to see them the boats weren't moving around um it was very very clear that people wanted to believe this and that there was something in us that was just yearning to be back in touch with nature which our busy noisy lives have kind of uh, kept us from. So that's a phenomenon that I'm just seeing constantly. And, you know, this is probably, you know, the 30th interview that I've done about this.
2: (laughs) So, yes, I mean, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, made you a celebrity again. Um, It's probably a price you would not have preferred to pay uh, for all this acclaim. Um, So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, another part of this is you know, it's not just that animals are showing up in places or, I mean, and there are some really good stories about this, about uh, baby uh, sea turtles in Brazil and stuff like that. But some of it's also, we just make a hell of a lot of noise most of the time. So I, I, what I assume is we're hearing things that, in fact, we're hearing owls that hoot anyway. It's just that we make so much damn noise most of the time, we don't even know it. It's not that a new owl showed up and started hooting. It's that we got quieter.
3: You're absolutely correct. Um, There was just a little piece in The New Yorker about me uh, and exactly that example. Uh, Some friends who live just north of New Orleans uh, sent me this recording of something that they were hearing that they've never heard before. And I I knew the call. It was a barred owl. Uh, Barred owls will nest in... You know, urban areas, they're very furtive. They know how to take care of themselves really well. But urban areas are usually so noisy that we don't know, even notice their calls. The uh, the appearance of birdsong or the emergence of birdsong is already there is a theme that has been circling the globe. And frankly, it's just beautiful because birds singing is you know, that's really lovely. And, you know, the idea of people getting to hear it again, you know, people have, have needed a lift and, you know, birds are the wildlife that we encounter the most. Uh, it's really, really a strong reminder to people that we share this environment with some other creatures.
2: Yeah. And I think also we're oblivious some of the time. Okay. So I live, a block from the Hartford, West Hartford, Connecticut line. So I I live, you know, in in a suburb on the edge of of a city. Uh, We don't have a gigantic yard, but it's it's got trees and, uh, and shelter. And so we have, over the course of a year, bears, raccoons, opossums, foxes sometimes, owls, hawks, um, I'm leaving some things. Out, I'm sure, and of course, a riot of birds on certain days. But I, I also feel as though another thing that happens is that some people, because they kind of have their noses to the grindstone, or I'm sure there's some Thoreau image that I, I should be using, but they're they're you know they're on a, a rut back and forth to the office uh, and other chores that occupy them. Some of it is not even just a little bit more silent so you can hear things. Some of it is. If you pause long enough, if you're not working all the time, you could probably look around and see a lot of animals who are living side by side with you.
3: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, even, even in nature itself, when you go take a walk in the forest, you do not instantly see wildlife, even though they live there, they nest there, they den there. If you stand still for a while, uh, and I hope you have enough mosquito repellent to do so. But if you do, all kinds of things are start, will start to occur. Uh, it's an experience that I learned as a kid, you know, going hunting and sitting in a duck blind. It got really cold. But sitting still for an hour, suddenly, you know, you were surrounded and you realize you were surrounded. Uh, deer would be co- coming out. Bears would be coming out. Everything would be coming out because you were concealed. So now we've been kind of forced to at least be confined and it is slowing us down to spend more time just looking at the world around us. Uh, it's, it's nice to know that these creatures are there. But there's also a problematic side of this too. Uh, as our cities have spread uh, and uh, you know, it, it, it sprawled, I should say, we have encroached more and more on the habitats of wildlife. Our rural areas have expanded. We need more uh, land to grow more food for more people all the time. And we are unavoidably running into some of the pests or, you know, the microbes, the bacteria, and the viruses that these creatures host and when they jump to us, sometimes we're just not prepared for it, such as right. the one that we're dealing with now.
2: That's a really important point. Uh, one thing that we've covered on the show in the past is certainly for birds, there's a problem that we of discontinuity. We break up patterns of forests that birds need. It's not that we wipe them out entirely, but we create discontinuities that, that cause problems for them. But one point that you've been making that I hadn't thought about very much is that, yeah, one, you know, there's – I mean, there are a lot of bats out in the world. 20% of the mammal population of the world is bats. But we don't necessarily come in contact with them all the time. And if they have places to be where they're not going to be anywhere near us, uh, they're perfectly happy to do that. And, you know, mice can carry hantaviruses, but if they're carrying their hantaviruses around out in some vast nature preserve or protected wilderness, um, it's probably not as big an issue. But you're suggesting that one of the reasons we're running in into things like this, that there is spillover uh, into us might be just because we're kind of up in the animals' faces more.
3: Yeah, um, the spillover sometimes is an in, is an intentional spillover, but it, but it's not that we're going out there and looking for bats. Though um, the uh, horseshoe bat that is a carrier of the coronavirus is eaten, it's a, it's a rare item on on a table, but some people in China do eat them. But what happens more is that bats, like the fruit bats in Africa that were carrying Ebola, or this horseshoe bat, uh, they will infect another animal. The virus will jump from them. The horseshoe bat would jump to, um, to primates, and bushmeat is being killed in Africa. Uh, and sold and then human beings would eat it. And that's how uh, That's how viruses like Ebola start spreading uh, In this case, it looks like the vector went from a bat to a pangolin, which is a species that uh, Gets traded um, both for its cuteness. Some people keep them as pets But also they are eaten in China and and I want to make a point Point here. I wrote about this recently uh, you know, when you go to China, like it's amazing. They, Chinese seem to eat everything. You know, I've been served, uh, turtle knuckles. I've been served, um, gelatin cubes made of duck's blood, uh, seahorses. I mean, you name it, they eat it. Uh, I was once with a bunch of biologists, in a um, temple in Chengdu, a, a Buddhist temple, and they counted like 30 species of plants or more on our plates. And there's a good reason why Chinese eat everything, and that's because they've had some very, very serious famines. The last one was only 60 years ago. It killed 40 some million people. And if that were to happen to us, we would eat everything too. And the reason it doesn't happen to us right now is that we have industrial agriculture that is, you know, it's mechanized, it's it's, it's force-fed with chemistry to feed our enormous populations. But just like we can suddenly be, be brought down by a virus, these huge monocultures that we have of wheat and corn and soy, uh, and, and they're all, they're not technically clones, but they're all identical in those monocultures, you get one disease that hits them and it can knock out a huge chunk of our food supply immediately. So this coronavirus has given us a taste of how fragile uh, our huge structure, you know, this civilization that we live in, everything works so well. Well, have one little thing happen, like a tiny invisible virus, and doesn't work so well suddenly and things start collapsing around it.
2: Right, and it should be noted, it's not even just a matter of eating things. I mean, for example, uh, I, the, one of the I think it was Eco Health Alliance did a study in southern China of, um, and it was like a third of the population had some kind of harmless virus that genomically it seemed to have been uh, picked up from bats. And I mean, people go into bat caves for shelter. People go and harvest guano. People, you know, and that's just bats. We could be talking a, a lot of uh, of different species. But I don't want to get too hung up on that because I want to just also sort of go back to your book a little bit. One of the things that emerges, I think, in your book is the sense in which nature is very powerful. Nature, you know, without constant vigilance to reverse the progress of nature nature is going to win and there's one character in your book named jerry del tufo uh, who maintains bridges maybe just say a little bit about that a little bit about what he concluded anyway about how hard it is to keep bridges uh, safe from other species
3: yeah uh, jerry del tufo was a guy that at the time was in charge of three of the biggest bridges that link manhattan to the mainland and I, I spent a day with him underneath bridges. And, you know, you, you, when you're underneath them, they are so huge. And I mean, they're just immense. It's like being, you know, in, in, in St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome where the immensity is supposed to humble you. And that's what it feels like. It, I mean, nothing could bring this thing down except he, he said he explained to me that they're in a constant battle against nature Uh, he said birds will fly over one of their bridges and they will excrete a seed. And of course, that seed that's excreted has got its own fertilizer around it. It will wedge in between the juncture of a couple of two-inch-thick steel plates. And the next thing he knows, there's an Eilanthus tree whose roots are tearing apart the George Washington Bridge. He said, you have no idea how often we are dealing with that situation, he said, this battle against nature, ultimately humanity will lose. I just don't want it to happen on my watch.
2: Right. There's a, you know, I think people are familiar with this adage, this old idea, if you change the course of a river, it will seek its old bed. It will gradually try to get back into its old bed. But there's a way in which in your book, that's just true for all kinds of things, including You know, if there's a bridge there where it's not supposed to be, uh, a lot of forces are are, are arrayed against its ability to connect one piece of land to another.
3: Yeah. Um, You know, eventually, you know, there's a sort of an unspoken theme in my book that is very, very clear by the end of it that um, I never had to interview any politicians for the book as politicians don't have much to do really with holding the world together. Um, as we've noticed, they can help tear it apart pretty easily. But uh, the maintenance personnel are of the human race, they are the ones who keep civilization intact. Because if a bridge is not maintained every year, you know, for example, here in New England, we have this freeze-thaw cycle. And when it thaws... Uh, water will seep into little junctures, tiny little ones, such as around, you know, a bolt that is into the pilings on either side of a bridge. that are, you know, tons and tons and tons of concrete. And then when it freezes, that water expands, and eventually stuff will loosen, and sooner or later... If there's no maintenance, that thing will loosen enough that some of those bolts will just break. And then along come a hurricane, and we're having hurricanes more frequently, and you get one end of the bridge that starts to dance on the pilings, and then pretty soon the whole bridge destabilizes, and then the next hurricane comes along, and it's a wallop, and the bridge is in the river.
2: So, Alan Wiseman, I, I want to also make sure that we're not over-romanticizing some of this stuff. Like, it you know, seems really nice when the goats come down from the mountain um, and, um, you know, start... Repopulating a village in in Wales and there's all those kinds of things right the dolphins swimming swimming coast close to the coast of Istanbul uh, and the fish visible in the Venice canals and a lot of this I mean is re- indisputably good news, at least for the instant that it's true. But uh, is there a way in which we get too excited a- about the goats and, and that maybe makes us happy in a way that
3: isn't entirely realistic. Well what's not entirely realistic. Is that? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, eventually this pandemic will die down. They all do. It may take longer than we expect. It may take two or three years before uh, the the crowds, you know, uh, take over the streets again, and then the animals will retreat again. But basically nature is sort of giving us a warning shot right here because the the pandemics even though they've always existed through history they are going to happen faster and more frequently now this sounds if this sounds like a lot like climate change that's true and it's sort of for the same reason we are much more numerous than we've ever been before For reasons that, uh, the book that followed The World Without Us, which is called Countdown, I explain why we suddenly quadrupled our population in a single century. That's unprecedented in the history of any large animal. And that means that we live closer to each other, and things can be transmitted faster and faster, and we are encroaching more on where animals used to uh, used to live, and even if we're not talking about taking over wilderness, the way we feed ourselves uh, also involves the in, the industrialization of meat production and these meatpacking factories that we have right now are also places where viruses can emerge and suddenly start to spread. Swine flu is the, is the example. So I think the unreality, uh, if I understood your question right, is not that, oh, isn't this nice? And now that we we go back out there, we're going to learn to pay more attention to nature and to try not to dirty up the canals so fast so we can still see the fish. I think our overwhelming presence on the planet is something that sooner or later, uh, either we're going to deal with gracefully, you know, by gradually bringing our population down, by making... Um, you know contraception available to every woman who wants it and basically if you educate women they tend to have far fewer children and that will over the course of a couple generations I I think bring us down to manageable size if we don't do that nature is going to do it for us You know, it's exactly like those bridges. You know, nature does not like these kinds of imbalances, and we're in a huge imbalance right now. So, that's my reality check.
2: Right. We're going to stop it there and 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 hold that takeaway in your heads, people. Uh, It's not the world without us. It's the world without quite so many of us. Uh, that would be a much better scenario. I'll tell you one thing that we didn't do, just parenthetically. What we mm-hmm. didn't do is say, hey, where are all these disposable gloves and surgical masks and N95 masks? Where are they going to go? And we stop using them <laughs> because we've basically done the same thing with them that we do everything with everything else. And it's a really kind of a marine problem already, both for rivers, lakes, and oceans, that all this stuff, this stuff that's made out of these pretty uh, you non know, non-degradable materials. They're they're already starting to pile up in aquatic environments and turning up, uh, I think, inside digestive systems of marine mammals. And so we did the same thing all over again. We didn't have that conversation. Yeah, Alan, you want to say one last thing about that? Yeah.
3: Well, you know, there's a chapter in the world without us that became, it it really went viral about plastics and the great garbage patch on the Pacific It was one of the first pieces of reporting on it. And I thought that I had accomplished a lot. You know, there were, there were bottle laws and plastic bag laws, but it turns out that since that book came out in 2007, there's twice as much plastic on the planet right now. So it's one thing of, of understanding what we need to do. It's another thing of actually doing it. We have to really, really, make some big changes in the coming decade and i hope we do
2: all right alan weisen author of the world without us and many other books he's got another book that he's working on we look forward to that it actually i believe has hope in the title and that's a good news we'll take a break we need to talk about air pollution uh which it turns out i knew almost nothing about although i would have thought that i did i All right. So the theme of the show is kind of, you know, what what is the effect of uh, a dialing back of human activity uh, during the shutdown? Um, and it turns out in the area of air pollution, it's kind of more of a push and pull kind of situation. Uh, Beth Gardner is here with us, uh, the author of Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution, uh, and also the author in National Geographic of *Pollution Made co- Pollution Made COVID-19 Worse. Now Lockdowns Are Clearing the Air. This is a fascinating article. Just so many uh, things in it that I had no idea about. So uh, we'll link to it on our show page, but we have Beth Gardner here right now. Uh, So let's get talking. Welcome to our show. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So let's first of all talk about that idea of uh, the link between Covid nineteen and um, and severe air pollution. That severe air pollution seems to worsen the course of Covid nineteen uh, more more consistently in human bodies. I'm not saying that very well, but I bet you can say it way better.
0: Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, there's uh, already uh, you know some significant evidence that we're starting to see that people in places with high or even moderate levels of air pollution. Are suffering more cases of COVID nineteen and also higher rates of death from COVID nineteen. So you know this might sound surprising to a lot of people, but it actually really is kind of the logical conclusion of everything that we already knew about air pollution and what it does to our bodies. And actually, the the reason that I, I wrote a whole book about this is that. You know, I think like you just described, I was actually really shocked the first time that I started to read and learn a little bit about how profoundly air pollution affects our health. Um, you know, 7 million people, the World Health Organization says, die every year around the world from the effects of air pollution. And you might sort of be thinking like asthma and things like that. And of course, it's true that air pollution exacerbates asthma. but it, Goes so much further than that. Um, breathing dirty air over the course of, of years, you know, over the course of a lifetime, raises your risk and raises the rate of everything from heart attacks and strokes to diabetes, premature birth, birth defects, um, dementia. You know, the list of um, illnesses that are really strongly tied by the science to air pollution is a very, very long list. And what we've learned you know, as we've become familiar with, with the, this coronavirus is that the people who are most susceptible to it are people with exactly those kinds of pre-existing conditions. So it just stands to reason. And the initial research is already starting to bear this out. There was a big study released last month uh, from the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, you know, showing that places where air pollution is even a little bit elevated will have a significantly higher death rate than places where people are breathing clean air. So that's pretty
2: powerful, in my opinion. Yeah. So air pollution is like a comorbidity for your comorbidities for coronavirus. So hypertension, heart disease, breathing problems—all those things are comorbidities that will intensify your uh, symptom expression for COVID-19. And and air pollution makes those comorbidities more morbid, so to speak. Uh, more common. Yeah, and more common. So so yeah. So that's step number one, and that's kind of the bad news. Now there's some sort of good. Good news, uh, And it's, it's, it's good news in, in several kind of fascinating ways. But yes, during these shutdowns, um, obviously there was less human activity. There was less driving. There were factories that were not operating. There was less air pollution in a lot of places. Maybe you can say a little bit more. We don't know everything about that yet. It's going to take more study. But what do we know about what happened during shutdowns?
0: Yeah. So it is true for sure. You know, and the first place that it became apparent was the first place that the virus emerged, which was in China, obviously a a country with a very serious air pollution problem. They shut down a lot of their very um, heavy industry, these coal burning factories that are responsible for a lot of the pollution. Obviously traffic pretty much came to a standstill too. And their air got much, much, much cleaner. And as the virus spread around the world, we saw that happening in other countries as well. Um, in India, you know, I've seen photos that their, their pollution is even worse in general than China. Uh, people could see the Himalayas who never even knew they had that view before because the air had been obscuring it. It was true across Europe. It's been true in the United States. But there was so much interest in that. And I just saw so many articles, so much coverage about how the shutdowns were bringing cleaner air And it really seemed to me like it was getting so overplayed and out of this maybe desire for, of people to find a silver lining in this horrible situation in the same way that we all grasped onto these, you know, social media videos, like you were talking about earlier of wild animals, you know, roaming free in the middle of city streets. Parenthetically, a lot of those videos were false or, you -hmm. know, predated the pandemic or just were totally unrelated. Um, But I think there was a desire for there to be kind of some silver lining, but it always struck me, and I think this is really being borne out now, that it didn't really mean that much. What do you actually learn? We know that air pollution comes from cars, right? So if everyone is ordered to stay at home and the cars are not on the roads and the factories are not fired up, well, of course, the the pollution is going to be less. But it doesn't mean that as soon as the lockdown's ease and normal life resumes, that all of those things aren't going to come right back. Of course they are. And in fact, as China opens up, we're already seeing there that um, pollution is e- equaling and in some places actually already exceeding pre-pandemic levels. And what we really know when you look back historically at economic um Crises or at recessions, and what they mean for sort of pollution and carbon emissions. Yes, they often bring a temporary dip, but generally speaking, the bounce back is even bigger than it was before. And, you know, oftentimes that's because there's a big push for deregulation in the name of sort of, you know, that somehow it's going to boost jobs and the economy, even though that's not really necessarily true. Um, but We're already seeing that in the US. The Trump administration is, you know, very aggressively pushing uh, um, its environmental regulatory rollback. Uh, The EPA has pretty much suspended enforcement of all air and water pollution regulations for the duration of the pandemic, an unspecified amount of time. So, you know, yes, pollution went down during lockdown, but I think unless we actually take some action to, Really change and find a better way of reducing our pollution, reducing our carbon emissions. We are at risk of heading for an even dirtier future. Um, and you know, it's obviously not. I, I think the other thing that always bothered me about all this focus on the the lockdown, clean air, was that it seems to somehow suggest that like, wow, this is the only way we could have ever possibly reduced air pollution. You know, no, no one. On Earth, <laughs> thinks that sort of confining people in their homes because of a horrendous disease that's you know spreading fear and destroying the economy. That is not the way to address pollution, right? So we need to find more sustainable ways to achieve that end
2: right and uh, you know i mean the the one hope that one would have and i think there's somebody expresses this in your national geographic article is you know what if people said oh that was nice having more fresh air that was nice i could actually notice that i could notice that the skies were cleaner that would maybe be worth hanging on to and Although we have to be a little bit careful about causation fallacies, it did seem as though uh, even over the short term of air pollution reduction, there was a concomitant reduction uh, in heart attacks and hyper- or in strokes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it could have been caused for a lot of different reasons, uh, but it seems at least possible in these heavily polluted areas like like Wuhan that even just rolling back the emissions for a while made people healthier for a while.
0: Yeah, well, I haven't seen anything yet on what the impact of the lockdown air quality has been, but we certainly know from a very, very large body of evidence that you know, if you live in a place for many years with high levels of air pollution, that will increase your risk of heart attack, of stroke, and all these other illnesses. But also on top of that, on a day when pollution spikes, then heart attack numbers go up, strokes go up, emergency room visits go up. Um, you know, I just saw some data in the UK that found asthma, um, attacks were down significantly during the lockdowns. So yeah, there, there would be some health benefits there, you know, ironically enough. Um, but I think the bigger question, as you say, is, you know, was there something in this experience that might inspire some change going forward? Because like I said, you know, locking down the economy is not the way to achieve cleaner air or a stable climate. You know, what it did teach us or demonstrated very vividly is that when you stop burning fossil fuels or you burn less fossil fuels, that you get cleaner air and you get a drop in carbon emissions. So what we need to think about is how can we burn less fossil fuels in a way that doesn't require us all to be stuck at home fearing you know this terrible virus i bet there um, and, i bet there's gonna some other mean way. yeah that's gonna mean clean energy solar and wind power and it's gonna mean better approaches to getting around you know different um Ideas about transportation, especially in big cities. Right.
2: Well, they are expanding bike lanes in London, for example. That's maybe a sign of hope. Beth Gardner is the author of Choked Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. You should absolutely read our article to which we will link Pollution Made COVID 19 Worse. Now, lockdowns are clearing the air. Uh, And we're going to say goodbye, go to a break, we'll come back, and we'll tell you about. Things in the night that are crossing the roads, that need to cross the roads, and we need them to cross the roads. Streets
1: full of people,
2: all along, roads full of houses, but they never All right, so we're back, uh, and it is my pleasure to thank Kat Pastor, who's there in the studio making it possible for us to work remotely while she runs the board. Uh, and uh the, this episode was produced remotely by Jonathan McPants, uh, thanks to him as well. We'll be back tomorrow with The Nose, where we've uh, been watching this. Well, I, I will confess, I will sort of— um Do a spoiler on the show, this little movie called The Vast of Night that I really love a lot. So we'll be talking about that and many other things besides, as we tend to do. All right. So now it's time to talk uh, about salamanders and newts and frogs, um, all of which at certain times uh, need to cross the road at night. Uh, And I am pleased also to say that part of our story transpires in Unity, Maine, where we, in fact, do have one listener... (laughs) I doubt we have two listeners in Unity, Maine. But we do have Stephen Thompson, uh, who listens to our show in Unity, Maine. So shout out to Stephen Thompson. And welcome to Brandon Kime, a freelance journalist specializing in animals, natures and science. He wrote a piece for the New York Times last month called, the, With the World on Pause, Salamanders Own the Road uh which uh sums up the piece but also maybe slightly overstates all of the advantages that salamanders are getting because it's still a pretty tough thing that all these little animals need to do so uh welcome to the show brandon kine hey colin thanks for having me so maybe we should just start to help people understand what 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 we're getting into with the concept of big night maine so tell people what what is big night in maine so, uh, big nights are the
1: name that uh, amphibian people have for evenings uh, in the early to mid spring, where the weather conditions are all right. It's you know warm, maybe it's rainy or there was rain during the day, and you just see these incredible surges of amphibians, of frogs and toads and salamanders, um, moving from their uh, from their wintering their winter homes uh, to the vernal pools where they'll reproduce. And vernal pools are these. Uh, seasonal um seasonal bodies of water that you know a lot of people you just go by them and you just sort of dismiss them as a big puddle in the woods but they're actually um incredibly vibrant and full of life and um yeah and on a big night you know if, if you go to certain spots uh, in um you know where there's a lot of amphibians you know there can be hundreds or even thousands of, of them crossing the road
2: And and well, there's a a lot of reasons why we should want to help them do this. Uh, But on an ordinary night, part of the problem is this whole plan. Uh, uh, that was made by the salamanders and the newts and the frogs a long, long, long time ago, before there were human beings and certainly before there were automobiles. So it's just not a good pairing, right? This need to go make sexy time in a pond with people driving down roads that uh, bisect that migration route.
1: Yes, the... um... You know, and and try to imagine, try to imagine crossing a road if you were, uh, you know, six inches long and stood an inch off the ground, right? This is, you know, this this is an incredible journey, and um, you know, there there have been studies that find that uh, for those amphibians who, I think, uh, go about a hundred meters or so, oh, you know, a. Uh, uh, a moderately busy road can end up killing 17 percent of them a year or 20 percent or something like that and the number goes up to like 40 percent um, for amphibians who are moving uh 500 meters or so it's just um the numbers are awful and and i also just want to say a quick thing about about the distances there you know 500 meters if you're or 1500 feet if you're if you are a salamander is an epic journey right there's uh there's a scientist who calculated the distances that amphibians move um, in terms of uh, kind of uh, inches, inches per ounce of, of body weight. And, and when you think of it like that, you know, what they're doing is comparable to, you know, wildebeest in Africa or caribou in the tundra. And, you know, it's these, these incredible migrations. And then they come to an end uh, underneath tires, which, which is really a tragedy.
2: Now, um, we should say a little bit about uh, which animals uh, we're talking about and and just what a huge part of the biomass uh, they make. Uh, listeners to the show are very bored by me quoting this JBS Haldane line when he's asked if he knows anything as a naturalist uh, about the mind of God. And he says, God is extraordinarily fond of beetles. Well, God God is extraordinarily fond of salamanders. At least if you <laughs> look at how many of them uh, He has caused to come into the world. Maybe you can kind of give us a sense of this.
1: Yeah, well, they are um, they're uh, an incredibly ancient. Lineage—they're derived in a, a relatively straight line from some of the very first terrestrial vertebrates—and um, and actually, I don't—I don't have offhand the total number of salamander and amphibian species in the world. I, I think you have about a dozen uh, salamanders, though, in Connecticut, which is—which is quite a number—and—and and they just have incredible life histories. There's—there's um, there's not time to get into all of them, but you know, like uh, there's. There is one thing, actually, it's called a salamander complex. Uh, you have them in Connecticut. We have them up here in Maine. Um, it's not technically a species, but rather a unisexual, all-female, self-cloning lineage that looks physically like the um, like the species from which sperm in the water activated the eggs that these females uh, laid. So. So, like, self-cloning all-female lineage, like, it's just mind-blowing. And uh, and some of them can live for decades, too, I should say that as well. So, um, uh, as, as a biologist named Aram Calhoun says, they're old enough to go to college, which is all the more reason uh, not to run them over.
2: Yeah, no, actually, for a second there, when you said you have a salamander complex, I thought you had been listening in other <laughs> therapy sessions. It's something my psychotherapist has said a number number of times to me. So these salamanders, just to stay with them for a second, I mean, you know, this, obviously they're important as a species, just qua species, but... They really do play an incredibly important role in the ecosystem, and they actually play a role. We just got through talking for 15 minutes about air pollution. Well, guess what? I mean, salamanders play a role in slowing the release of carbon. Maybe you can say something about that.
1: Yeah, so um, so I think one thing that's important to appreciate is just how many amphibians there can be in forest and and in some temperate forests you know the total biomass of of all the um, of all the salamanders and frogs you know actually outweighs that of um outweighs that of birds but you know birds are so much more visible we notice them birds and small mammals i'm sorry you know but those animals are, are so visible and we notice them but for the most part you don't see salamanders when you're walking in the woods um and yet they're there and um You know, among the many roles they play, they are uh, regulating populations of of the tiny little organisms who eat uh, fallen leaves. Um, And by slowing the disintegration of fallen leaves, then they allow the leaves go back into the soil, they nourish the forests, they... um, Uh, make those forests more resilient. And and as a consequence of this, there's lower carbon emissions. And then um, just getting away from carbon too, you know, the biologist I interviewed for this story um, says that he likes to think of vernal pools as a breathing cycle, you know, and they um, basically uh, uh, inhale water and exhale um, salamanders. And that is that is, that is so true. And, you know, every forest is this, you know, the result of this incredible process that basically turns uh, water and earth and sunlight into, you know, all the richness of plants and animals and other organisms that you see when you're there. And and salamanders and, and frogs and toads as well are just this crucial link um, in
2: that process. So um, we before we run out of time, we should we have to talk a little bit about the effect of the shutdown uh, on all this now. It's hard to do this in real time. It's hard to understand what's happening in a, in an ecosystem on such short notice. But because there are these scientists and volunteers who do this thing, right, where they they try to help these uh, creatures get across the road without getting run over. And they do counts of what got run over and what actually was successfully le- relocated. You do know something. Right. There's a little bit of a thumbnail sense that things were better this year.
1: Exactly right. Um, So the the biologist who coordinates this in Maine, his name is Greg LeClaire, and he says that right now the the back of the napkin calculation is that last year, um, they were basically finding uh, one dead, him, or he, all the network of volunteers he coordinates off across the state were finding one dead amphibian for every two living. Um, and this year, it looks like the ratio is about uh, one one dead for four living. So that's twice as many amphibians who seem to be getting through. And you know that that's an initial number. It it needs a lot more uh, statistical um, rigor, but it's promising and it's intuitively true. And um, and it's it's a it's a really helpful sign. And what, um,
2: with just a couple of minutes left, uh, Brandon, who who's doing this, right? I mean, who is who's doing all the helping of the salamanders? You you profiled this one uh, guy, but I mean, who's who does all this wonderful work on these big nights in Maine? So uh,
1: the man I profiled,
2: Greg, you know, he's a biologist.
1: But the people out there doing the work and rescuing the salamanders, um, you know, they're just regular people who really care about amphibians or really care about animals um and you know and that that actually uh, brings me to something i just wanted to say is that you know I, I can imagine there'll be some listeners out there who are who are saying wait a second you know why why are we talking about amphibians with everything that's going on in the world um and and i, I would just like to say to that that i think it's it's an act of care and Caring for other creatures, you know, especially those who are uh, harmed or threatened by us um, is something that really overlaps quite a bit, I think, with caring for the plight of uh, other human beings outside our immediate circle. And, and so that's, you know, really part of the reason why I think this is such a beautiful um, thing that they're doing is that, that it is an expression of care um, for the vulnerable, really.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. And I think probably a great way to end, too. We've been talking to uh, Brandon Keim, a freelance journalist specializing in animals, nature and science. He wrote a piece for The New York Times, to which we will also link, called um, With the World on Pause, Salamanders Own the Road. He has joined us today by Skype. Thank you, Brandon Keim
1: my pleasure take care colin
2: and thanks to all of you who listen thanks to kat and jonathan again we'll be back with the news tomorrow uh and we don't know all the topics but boy if you if you want to have some fun tonight on amazon prime this is not the most spellbinding action-packed movie you ever saw in your life but watch the vast of night and then just join us tomorrow for the conversation about that we'll be talking about other things too we just don't happen to know what at the moment
3: Go!